Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on covenant theology. Is everyone who wants them still getting emails? Okay. And you can still see up on the website. And now we have added, we are, you know, we're kind of cutting edge here at Christ Church. So um, I talked to our website provider and I said, you know, we have a podcast. Somebody like Gus had told me he had told a coworker about the podcast. And the problem with the podcast is you got sermons and Sunday schools and school of theologies and all this jumbled up. And I said, come on, guys. Help a brother out. And so we are a beta tester for them splitting it out into various podcasts. And so now, if you want to, if you're like me and you keep your audio on your phone and automatically downloads and does all of that and synchronizes, you can go to the um, either the website and there's a, a podcast feed, or you can go to the iTunes store and you type in Christ Church Katie and both the sermons and the School of Theology, and Sunday School will come up. And it will download right into your phone, and you can listen in the background. Now, there's one thing, though, you have to remember. If you do that, and you have opportunity to listen at your leisure and rewind and do all that, you can't be coming up to me and telling me all the mistakes I'm making. All right? Because I only get one shot at this. All right. This week, we're in week eight, and we're going to continue looking at... um, Covenant theology and its implications, its practical implications. Um, We looked last week at um, the covenant and marriage. And now this week we're going to go to the next logical step, which is look at the covenant and the family. Next week, we're going to turn our attention to work. And continue down looking at the practical imports of these things. So let me start by opening us up in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, O Lord, are good, that you, O Lord, provide for us, and that, Lord, in all that you do, you are just and holy. And we ask, Lord, that you would show us our own responsibilities uh, as uh, covenant members brought into a relationship with you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us this morning and teach us from your word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this week, we are looking at the covenant and the family. And you should have, I think they're going around the um, uh, worksheet. You can use it as a place to take notes. All right. So we're going to look at the covenant and the family, but where are we going to begin? You're not sounding that enthusiastic. We're going to begin where? That's what I like to see. Alright, 3M. What are the elements of a covenant class? Penalty occurs. Now, this is important as we think about this, especially with those last two, in the implications of covenant life. Because we can have blessings and curses in marriage, in our families in our work, in our church, in our lives, depending on our faithfulness to the covenant and keeping the conditions. The covenant of grace has parties, condition, a promise, and a penalty. Who are the parties to the covenant of grace? God and Christ. What is the condition? Whoa, I went too far, sorry. Faith in Christ. The promise is that God will be our God and the forgiveness of sins. And that there is no penalty. Why? Because God always fulfills. Okay? Now, is the covenant of grace unconditional or is it conditional? Yes. That's good. You got that. And you remember, how is it that the Covenant of grace can be both unconditional and conditional. What was our nice phrase that you can use when somebody's trying to be all snooty to you at Starbucks and they're saying, well, you know, I don't understand all this theology. I'm too wise and philosophical. You just say, you just don't understand the principle of asymmetrical synergism. 
and they say, what? And you say, you don't, wait a minute. You're here at Starbucks and you don't know what asymmetrical synergism is? You need to buy me a latte and then I'll explain it. That's what you do. People do it all the time, don't they? Stephen, they do that all the time there. They do that all the time. Asymmetrical synergism is our principle. How would you describe that? Now, in all honesty, if some, you said this to someone, so what is that? How would you describe that in a sentence or two? What does that mean when we talk about asymmetrical synergism? Come on, folks. What's synergism? Working together. What's asymmetrical mean? Right, well, it's, it's, it's imbalanced. So right now, now, I'm starting to reach the age of old age. I'm about to be 45. So I'm going to go over here to my young guys. My young guys work out. You do work out, you do like arm days. So when you go in and you do arm days, do you just go like this all day long and then go home? Why? Because then you're like Popeye over here, and you're like olive oil over here, right? So what do you do? That's asymmetrical. You walk around like this, right? You don't want to do that. You work this arm, and then you work this arm, right? So they're symmetrical. But that's not how God works. You see, what happens here is that there is a condition to be met. God meets the condition. And then we act. Is our act fake? Is our act insincere? No. It's real. But how can we act? Only because God has and He's provided. That's right. So, if I could take a step back to this morning. Do not let your Calvinism or your Reformed pedigree tell you that, well, repentance isn't really that important because I don't want to have any work in my salvation. Y'all better repent. Y'all better have faith. But you have to know you can't do it on your own. It's God and His gift that allows you to do it. God is the one who's working through us. There is a central theme to this. And that is, grace is found in each of the aspects. This one purpose in history that God reveals His glory in His grace. And then you remember our discussion about the organic unity. How is it that this covenant of grace looks different in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, it's because we begin like the acorn, and then it continues to flourish until it becomes the tree. There is progression of revelation. So we should understand this. So, for example, today, as we look at the family and duties of the family, for the most part, in the Old Testament, it's going to be a little bit more truncated, a little bit more story-related. By the time we get to the New Testament, Paul's wagging his finger at us, saying, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Right? So it's clearer. That's the way the Bible works. It doesn't mean the old is against the new, or the new replaces the old. It's a continuing progress. Now, we looked at marriage last week, that marriage was covenantal. What does that mean? We asked the question, why should we study marriage in the context of God's covenant? And the answer was that marriage is covenantal. It is a relationship. It is a bound relationship. And if God relates to us in this way, then shouldn't we strive in the same way? We want our marriages to be a picture of how God relates to us and how God relates because it's perfect. Does that make sense? Not that marriages are perfect. I realize that. Remember also that marriage is an illustration. It is an illustration of God's covenant with His people. It is an illustration of Christ's covenant with His church. And we see this in various scriptures that we alluded to last week. Okay, So this is what marriage is about. Marriage is covenantal in the sense that it is a description of why our relationship with the Lord is important and primary in our relationship with others. Because we cannot begin a covenantal relationship on completely unequal ground. Okay? That would be like, I don't know, like if Deb was an Ohio State fan or something like that. That would be hard for me. 
All right. Now this week, what we're going to look at is covenantal families and how we relate to each other based on God's relating to us. Okay? So the first question we ask ourselves is, what is a family? Now, we are in the middle of an era in which the family is being completely redefined. I don't mean like it was 20 years ago when people moaned and groaned about the family because there were single-parent homes or even because there were divorced homes and blended homes. I mean now, people put animals in their family, they put two husbands or three wives in their family, they, I mean, they have all, the family's become basically whatever we want it to be. There's even, so I don't know if some of you have seen the previews of this, there's a thing now where basically somebody wants to be a family with his computer. He wants to make his computer a part of his family, right? A machine. We have to understand that the family is a covenantal principle. And it is not about, we said this before with marriage, it's not about just the bedrock of society. It's not about efficiency. It's not about what's best for the children. It's not about highest graduation rates. It's not about lowest prison rates. All of that is important, but not primary. The primary thing that we need to understand is that we view the family through the lens of the covenant and how God relates to us. And so you have a father and a mother and children with them and under them. But we have to understand that the father and the mother are always under God. The family exists, not because people said, you know, this would be really good. The family exists because God brought it into existence. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God is building a family for himself. That's what the doctrine of adoption is about that we'll get to in just a few minutes. Any questions on this or comments? Y'all going to make it easy on me. Good. We'll just keep going. All right. So let's take a look at the Old Testament then. If we think about God's family beginning with the Old Testament, the Israelites were very aware that God was their father in a very um, supreme sense. And so Isaiah says, for example, For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. God's people understanding that if they are to be saved, and if they are to be a part of God's people, they must be a part of God's family. Yes? This is actually a principle from the Gentiles, but the idea is the same. Yes. Um, so, this is, this is the place where it begins. We see here in Isaiah 43, this is the other part of it. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. How many of you have heard, it's a pretty good catchy phrase, there are no Lone Ranger Christians? Y'all heard that phrase? Okay. Do you know why that is? People think initially pastors say that because they want people to come to church. And they don't want people just to read their Bible at home. No. The reason there are no Lone Ranger Christians is that if you are a Christian, if you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, you must be adopted into the family of God. And if you are adopted into the family of God, you must have brothers and sisters. Right? Now that's something for us to understand. Close your eyes and think about when you had a brother or a sister. And think about how they were like really annoying. And took your stuff. And picked on you. And did that game with you where they repeat everything that you say and you can't get them to stop. You know what I mean? God's family's a little bit like that. We don't get to pick and choose. Some of our siblings are annoying. We're annoying to our siblings. You cannot just 
pick yourself up and say, I don't have a father, I don't have a mother, I don't have a family because it's easier for me. That's not how God's relationships work. He covenantally draws us into His family. Hosea 11 is a wonderful example of this. The New Testament fleshes this out even more. It takes this idea that Isaiah talked about with the Gentiles who even weren't a part of God's family and how they're brought into God's family and how the Israelites who had wandered are still apart. And so we see this over and over again in John 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now remember, this is a verse at the end of that great litany of who Jesus is and how He is the Word and how He brought grace and truth. And He did all of that to give us, what's the word? The right to become the children of God. It is a right that you have by virtue of Jesus' work. You don't need to earn it. Nobody else needs to give it to you. You don't need to pass any test. You are a part of God's family simply because of what Jesus has done. So, now, if we think about this, what does that remind us of, covenantally? Adam? Well, sort of. What else do we get from Jesus for doing nothing because of His work? Righteousness. Where does that righteousness come from? In what context? What did we talk about it? One might even call it a covenant of grace. Remember, Jesus is our head. Covenantally, we become right with God. Covenantally, we become a part of the family of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. John 11, And not for the nation only, but also together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This concept of being a child of God is critical and important. The world wants to flatten that out. It wants to say we're all children of God. And that God's our Father in some kind of vague, fuzzy, precious moment-y way. Not true. We are God's children because God has brought us into relationship with Himself through a covenant bond and vow that He will never break and that was fulfilled by the work of Jesus. It's not emotional. It's not fuzzy. It's not something that we can lose. It is a part of the work of Jesus. So as we think about that covenantally, then we don't need to think about all of the things that can send us flitting hither and yon. There are people today that labor under the false doctrine that says there are two stages to salvation. I get saved by God, and then I really become committed to God, or really become a child of God by what I do. And if I don't do the right things, well, at least I'm still saved. But I'm not fully sold out for God. I'm not full, God doesn't fully love me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm a carnal Christian. I'm not a real Christian. I'm not a part of the church. But at least I'm still saved. Not true. Not true at all. God does it all from A to Z, from soup to nuts. Covenantally, He brings us together. This happens through the doctrine of adoption. He predestined us, that's good Presbyterian language, right? He predestined us for what? Adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. God's purpose before time. What does that remind you of? How did we study God's purpose before time? What did we call that? We called that a covenant of... Louder? Redemption. Remember? The before time aspect of the covenant of grace. The, the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that God would call a people and that Jesus would do the work and that the Holy Spirit would apply it. Part of all of that is adoption, Paul tells us. Before the foundation of the world, God's purpose was that you should be a son or a daughter. It is not an afterthought. That's important to think through. 
That has implications. Now, before you read the whole verse, look at me. How many of you parents have said these words? Your kid comes home and has done something they shouldn't do. They threw a snowball at a car. They ripped up some plants. They did something. And you are about set to get the punishment. And they come with what they think is the Perry Mason defense. And they say, but Dad, but Mom, Johnny did it too. And then before you even have to think, spits out of your mouth, I don't care what Johnny does. Johnny's not a part of our family. You do what our family does. We have our standards. I'm not responsible for Johnny. His parents are, right? That's the same thing in the family of God. We are called to be different because we are Jesus's. We're not called to be different so that God will love us. We are called to be different because we are God's. And if we're not, then we're saying, you know, maybe we're not God's. If He hasn't changed us, if He hasn't made us like all of our brothers and sisters, maybe I need to take stock. Maybe I need to repent. Maybe I need to think through my life. So Paul writes this, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, do not hear that I am saying this. That what Christ Church ought to do is find the last piece of grass that exists in Katy, and get a developer, and get a developer to build the Christ Church community. And we all live in there, and we put up a big gate, and we never go out and talk to people, and we never let other people corrupt us, and we stay only in our community, and we never go anywhere. Why? And why are we supposed to be in the world? To be salt and light. And what do we do as salt and light? We witness. We go to other people. We're not on defense, folks. We're on offense. We're not building a wall to play defense. We're taking it to the devil. We're taking his people and ripping them out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light. But as we do that, we can't be of the world. What that means is we need to stay salty. We need to stay lighty. We need to have other people see us and notice there's a difference. That's how this interplays. We are a covenant community, but we are in mission in the world. We cannot forget the community that we're a part of, otherwise we're not effective in the mission. Right? My guess is that when the Green Berets and the Rangers go out into the field, or even before there's a battle, they're taking their guns apart and cleaning them and putting them together. They're practicing shooting. They're doing all the time because they need to stay sharp for their mission. If they don't, they can't perform their mission. It's the same thing with the family of God. That's why, for example, we read our Bibles, we memorize, we encourage one another, we go to Sunday school, we sing God's praises, we do everything we do, not only because we're called to it and it gives us pleasure, but because it is our training to go out on the mission. If you think you can go out and talk to people about Jesus and never sing a hymn and never pray and never read your Bible and never never memorize a verse, you are going to find yourself sorely mistaken. Right? That's why we are different, Paul says. All right, so now let's take a quick look at the family. What does the family look like then? Because one of the ways in which we can model differences and model covenantal is modeling a family. You start with the father. The father is the head of the family. Okay. I would like, loudly, in rapid fire, y'all to describe for me fathers in television commercials and sitcoms. Describe for me. What? Idiot, weak, goofy, doofuses. What else? Effeminate. What else? Who runs the house in the sitcom? The kids. The kids. And what's mom's job in the house? To nag the husband and to keep important information from the husband. 
right? I'll tell you a funny story. One of um, our missionaries when we lived in Ohio was a man who was a missionary in Spain. He's a former Marine, was saved. Great guy. Jack Campbell's his name. And he was trying to describe the biblical role of the head of the father. And he said, you know, in the, uh, in the Bible, it's father, mother, children. And he said, you know, the problem here in Spain is it's children, mother, father. And the man he was speaking to said, no, 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 no. He said, um, niños, what's the word for mother? Madre? Hombre! You know, way down there. That's the way our society is. Why are husbands the head of the family? Because that works out really good for Fred, because he's a man, right? Because we're a patriarchal society that has uh, squashed the feminine nature of our society in order to keep economic advantage over them. This is what society will say. No. Because in Ephesians 3, Paul writes this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit and your inner being. The word there for family means fatherhood. Fatherness is the Greek there. You could almost say, from whom every aspect of father in heaven and on earth is named. We have families and we have fathers because God is a father. I think sometimes we think about it as God describes himself as a father as an illustration for us. No. God's fatherness is the primary. Our fatherness is the shadow. Which is why, quite frankly, we have fathers that aren't very good. We have fathers that abuse their privilege. We have fathers that lord it over. We have fathers that abdicate their authority. It doesn't mean fatherhood is bad. It means those are bad fathers. How many of you have ever bought rented or driven a bad car. You got a lemon, right? So therefore, you stopped driving, right? You never bought a car again because you got a bad car, so cars must be bad. You started walking everywhere, right? No, why? Because that would be dumb to do that. You just get rid of it and you get a proper car. That's the way the world works. Some of you here today, don't raise your hands, have been through families where your fathers were the exact opposite of what they should have been. Some of you have had difficulty coming to the Lord because of that. You have to understand, God's not responsible for people breaking His image of Father. The image is still there. And what we then need to do is to seek to emulate that proper image of Father that is loving, caring, but has authority, does not abuse the authority, does not abandon the job and the task. Because that's what God has called us to, to be a picture in the world. The main task of the Father is to raise children. Now, I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, because for most of us, we would be completely lost without mom at home. But we're going to get to mom. What do I mean by raise children? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons, by keeping all his statutes and commandments. So, you are to do this, you are to follow God, and not only are you to follow God, you are to ensure that your son follows God. And you are to ensure that your son's son follows God. How do we do this? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Pretty good summarization of the Bible, right? What do we do with that? 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. What does that mean to teach diligently? Some of y'all homeschool. You have a homeschool room, right? Sometimes it's a kitchen, sometimes it's a living room. You have a table, you set it up, and everybody knows it's school time, right? And then if you're like my kids, they try and sneak off to get away from school time. That's not sufficient. You teach them to your children. You talk, them, you talk of them when you sit down in the house. When you walk by the way. When you lie down. When you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And on the doorposts of your gates. So you're basically to carry this with you everywhere. Every place you go with your kids, you are to be telling them the truth of God's Word. And it needs to be visible. That's why he says, put them as frontlets on your eyes. What the Israelites literally did was they took Bible verses and made, forgive the term, bandanas out of them. And they put it on their head so that when the kid was looking at them and they were saying to them, the kid could look and go, ooh, that's Genesis 28.15. You know, I mean, they would do this everywhere they would go. And so what that means is, well, let me ask it differently. Can you live your life with your kids constantly quoting Bible verses to them? No. If you think you can, you don't have kids. What does it mean? It means that as you live all of your actions, if I can be a little bit over the top, you need to cook dinner biblically in front of your kids. You need to clean biblically in front of your kids. You need to watch uh, television biblically in front of your kids. You need to go on vacation biblically with your kids. All of these things, biblical values and principles and faith, need to be inculcated in every aspect of your life, especially the Father. Now, I'm kind of lost here because i got the dad sitting here. But just in case you were tempted, that means, dads, it is not an option to send the kids to church with mom. That was really a cultural thing in America about 30 years ago, wasn't it? You'd have moms and dad was doing his job to make sure that kids were in church while I watched the news. Right? Not according to the Bible. You are the primary trainer of your children. You say, wait a minute. How did I get to be the primary trainer? I'm not that good at teaching. She's better at teaching. She's with them more time. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You got to be head, didn't you? Well, yeah. What did you think head was? You get to order around and have dinner when you want, go to bed when you want, whatever? No. That means you're responsible. Anybody who's ever worked at a company and been the boss realizes sometimes it is very much not fun to be the boss because you're responsible. Same thing is true in the family. What that also means is you have a duty specifically as a father to speak, to teach and instruct. We saw that from Deuteronomy 6. Later in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 20, it says, When your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies in these statutes? You shall say to your son, listen, boy, we were slaves in Egypt. It was miserable. Pharaoh held it all over us. But God came. He set us free, that we might be redeemed, that we might serve Him and worship Him. And He gave us all of these lands so that we could serve Him and be a testimony to Him and how He has changed us. Now, I've just paraphrased Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25. You can look it up and see how the ESV does it. It means as a father, your primary role is to tell others, especially your family, of God's faithfulness. Isaiah 38 says, The living, the living he thanks you as I do to this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Psalm 78 is a wonderful psalm. The things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, but we will tell them to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. You face a temptation, dads. Because you think it's being kind of emotional and girly. If you sit down with your kids and you tell them about how God broke you and brought you to a need of Himself. That's the definition of manhood. 
and fatherness. You need to tell your children of the great deeds of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, I hate to tell you this. You know, each week I give you homework. Now you got bonus homework. How are you going to tell your children what the great deeds of God are if you don't know what they are? You read the Old Testament cover to cover? Have you read the history of the early church? Or the Reformation? Or the founding of America? You see, those are great deeds of God. If we want to impart a greatness of God to our family, we must know it. Right? Kids are not going to be impressed if we don't impart it to them. But it's, we have to do more as fathers than speak. We have to also remember that we must act. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You know, before I became a father, I read this and thought, well, okay, good, it's a command of God. Once you become a dad, you realize how this is. Because let me tell you, there is nothing easier for a father to do than to discourage and provoke his children. I'm just telling you the gospel truth. It is not the hardest thing to keep control over your kids. That is not the hardest thing. It's hard, trust me, it's hard. It is not the hardest thing. The hardest thing is that when you're tired and you're hungry and you've got a million things still to come and, and you don't understand exactly and you just run roughshod over your family. Because it's a lot easier to just say, because I said so. Or just do it. Can't you already? Why? Just do it. With no explanations. Now, I'm not saying that what we need to do is we need to be 24 hours a day all sensitive-like. But being an authority in the home does not mean that when we come in the room, people think the drill sergeant has just come in. It doesn't. Because there's an aspect of love and care and compassion that's involved. There's authority. You cannot give up that authority. But you cannot provoke the children. Come on, one more. This is absolutely critical. How do we know this is critical? If you don't perform these tasks... You are not fit to be an officer in God's church. Think about that. It's as important as knowing Jesus, knowing the doctrine, and being a leader. If you cannot manage your household, you are not fit to be an elder or a deacon. Now, that doesn't mean your household needs to be perfect and everybody's always combed right and everybody's lined up in the right order and everything like that. No. That's not what that means. But what it means is God takes this very, very, very seriously. It's not optional. It's important. And once we realize how hard it is and that it's not optional, where's the only place we can go? To God. This is not easy. Let's talk about moms for a minute. Mom's duty is to train the young women to love their husbands and children. And by implication, primarily to love their husbands and children, right? To be a model of that kind of covenantal bond of love in the home. And the implications of that are staggering. So, moms can think that their lives are pretty boring. They cook, they clean, they make sure the house is set up right, they make sure the kids are on bed on time, etc. Yeah. A lot of a mom's life is humdrum, isn't it? Yeah. You know what? A lot of dad's life at the office is humdrum. Mom taught son. Son came to faith in Jesus. Son, because of what he was taught, hooked up with a man. Son became the pastor of the most important church in the early Christian era. That's Timothy's story. Grandma taught mom, and mom taught Timothy, 
And Timothy took what grandma and mom gave him and it went boom all over the world. Who could we say taught boom all over the world? Mom and grandma, couldn't we? Right? You don't think Charles Spurgeon's mother had an effect on the church of Jesus Christ? Who's the most famous hymn writer in the world? Okay, there's one. Give me another one. How about Newton? No, John Newton. Amazing Grace. Come on. I mean, Amazing Grace is easy. You all know what kind of man Newton was, don't you? He was a slaver, a pirate, a miserable excuse for a human being. You know, prayed for him every single day for decades? His mom. You don't think his mom has an effect on the church of Jesus Christ? How many of you have been to a funeral or wedding or service where Amazing Grace was sung? That's John Newton's mom. Right? Jesus using her as a vehicle. Do not ever get drawn down into the ordinary, ladies. The ordinary is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Children have a duty too. That's all of us. Because all of us, we didn't spring full grown from Zeus's head, right? We're not Athena. We all have parents. And so the children have a duty. That duty is to respect. Deuteronomy 27 says, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. If the children are not respectful, then the parents can go to the elders of the city and say, Our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And you know what the elders of the city do? They stone him. And you know what the people do? They say, Amen. This is an important part of God's covenantal relationships. And again, we have lost this because we've marred the way we relate to one another. It's not covenantal. It's all individual. It's all about my needs. Kids don't want to listen to their parents because it's all about my needs. Mom doesn't want to submit to the husband because it's all about my needs. Dad doesn't want to be involved and lead and show love because it's all about his needs. But if we think about it covenantally, then we put it in proper perspective. The children's duty is also to build up relationships with their parents and with others around them. We see this in Micah 7 and in Matthew 7. I'm going to keep going. So there is a covenantal environment. So if we look at the family covenantally, we see there are blessings of faithfulness and a covenant relationship, and there's unity in the home, but there are also curses for doing this improperly, right? This is right off the newspaper. Adultery, divorce, polygamy. It's the mess of our society. Our society is reaping the curses of the covenant. Because we have abandoned God, we have abandoned the covenant institution of the family, we've abandoned biblical relationships, and we expect to still have blessing. Well, that's foolish, because what do our friends say? There are parties, there is a condition to be met, and if the condition is met, there are blessings, and if it is not, there are cursings. Very simple. I could explain that to a first grader. I wish PhDs at Harvard got that. It's a very simple biblical principle. So what does this look like? How can I fall down on the job and bring curses? Well, first, I could be a bad influence in my family. Second, I can indulge disobedience. Third, I can show partiality to our kids. Right? And the consequences of this failure can ripple out. So... In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says that the people have gone after the Baals. They've abandoned God. Why? Because that's what Dad taught them. Dad taught them God wasn't important. Dad taught them be your own man. Dad taught them think for yourself. Don't listen to God. Don't listen to the Scriptures. Ezekiel 20, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. God says, if the church is out there, and it is hurting the cause of Christ. 
I'm going to have to bring covenantal curses on it. We see it all throughout the Old Testament in the days of the kings. You see this phrase, he walked, he did evil, he walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother. 1 Kings 22, talking about Ahaziah. Y'all know Ahab, right? Ahab and Jezebel. They're wicked. Does it really shock you that their son did not turn out so good? Right? This is what happens. It has consequences beyond us. John the Baptist. John the Baptist gets his head cut off. Why? You remember the girl dances and the stupid king says, well, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. What does she say? She goes, to, she goes to mom and she says, mom, what should I ask for? And mom says, oh, get the head of John the Baptist. Okay. There's some good instruction. Right? It's wickedness continuing. We have examples of indulgence. You remember Eli and his sons? You remember both his sons and who else gets punished? Eli does, doesn't he? Why? Because all Eli did was be absent. Eli didn't actually do anything wicked, did he? He just stood by and watched his sons sin and profane the temple of God. And he said, well, you know, boys will be boys. Right? Samuel, he also, he was indulgent. He didn't, he didn't keep Israel on the path. And then we see David. Now, does it surprise us? Who taught Samuel? Who? Who taught David? Jesus. Shock us? You remember David and his son? Absalom? Well, where would David have learned that? Samuel. Where did Samuel learn it? Eli. It becomes a pattern in our lives. We have to break that pattern. We can be partial. Isaac. I got my favorite son. Rebecca. Well, I have my favorite son. You can't run a family like that. What happens? Well, let's see. Fighting. One guy flees for his life. The other guy wants to become a murderer. They deceive their father, fight with their mother. That's not exactly, you know, family circus, is it? All as a result, really initially, of their partiality. Jacob as well. Jacob didn't learn the lesson. Jacob has to go flee for decades. You'd think if anybody would learn not to be partial, it would be Jacob. What does Jacob do? Oh, Joseph. Oh, for my favorite wife. Get out of here, guys. Oh, Joseph. Seriously? Right? you got to break the chain. How does that chain break? Who doesn't show partiality? God. And God enters into Joseph's life, and that chain breaks. Joseph forgives his brothers. He doesn't say, I'll forgive all of y'all but you, because it was your idea to put me in a pit. Right? The power of the family for evil is incredible. God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not bow to them, that is, to idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If we look at this verse, we think, well, if I do something bad, God's going to punish me so bad, He's going to hurt me and my son and my grandson. That's not what it means. It means, if I'm a liar, how do you think my kids are going to turn out? They're going to be liars. And how are their kids going to turn out? They're going to be liars. Evil is imitatable, just like good. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Same concept. But, the opposite is true. The power of the family for good is incredible. We hear of the king who did all that was right in the eyes of the Lord according to what his father Amaziah had done. And then we hear in 
Second Chronicles 27. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. And in 2 Timothy 1, we see Timothy having a sincere faith that was first in his grandmother Lois and second in his mother Eunice. So there is a power of good in the family to be impacting far beyond our span, far beyond our reach, far beyond our lives. We have to understand this final principle, though. The family is about relationships. It's not about math. Some of you that are newly married with new kids, good dad plus good mom does not always equal good kid. Right? Right? Bad dad and bad mom does not always equal bad kid. Why? Because God intervenes. That doesn't remove our responsibility, but do not live life thinking, if I just arrange everything properly, everything will turn out right. Trust me, you will be disappointed. (laughs) That's not how life works. Because there is sin all around us, and God is everywhere. And so God can break in, and sin can come into our world, no matter how tightly we try and hermetically seal it. It is important to remember that there is a promise that we go on. It is not a formula. It's not just a rule, plus be consistent, will always equal salvation. Next week, we're going to apply these principles in another sphere. That is work. And so you have homework. You have to read Genesis chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to look next week at work. And then the following week, we will begin to start looking at the gospel, salvation, and the church. Anybody have any final questions before we break up? I'll remain for a bit. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you work in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Please take us home safely and allow us to enjoy your great bounty. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and encourage us to hear your word this evening as Pastor Rankin preaches. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all have a wonderful afternoon.